0: This interview is made possible by the VIEW Conference, the biggest computer graphics conference in Italy. Our dates for 2022 are from the 16th to the 21st of October. We hope to see you in Italy or online. For more information about VIEW Conference, please visit our website, viewconference.it. We're super excited to have here with us Danielle Feinberg, who is the visual effects supervisor on Pixar's latest hit movie, Turning Red. We're really Thank happy you. to have you here with us today. How and why did you decide to uh, go into animation?
1: You know, I, had, uh, I have this very kind of math and science side, and I got some experience with um, very rudimentary programming when I was young and really liked it. And, and that first programming, it actually made pictures. So from the very beginning, when I touched computers, it was about making pictures sort of. And as I went along, um, I, my parents are very artistic. So we just did, doing art was kind of a part of life. And so there was this moment where I'm in college and I'm studying computer science and I'm taking the computer graphics class, which is probably like it was the class that I was dying to take. And it was junior year and the professor showed These short computer animated films that happened to be by Pixar but nobody knew what Pixar was back then because this is 1994 or something (laughs) and I just so clearly remember watching that and just thinking that is what I have to do with my life like that is such this perfect combo of these things that I love of of art and um math science and code but also telling stories and creating worlds like I don't know it was all kind of magical to me and so that um it it was I had the fortune of the having that very clear moment of like that's what I have to do. I have no idea how I'm gonna do it, but that's what I have to do. Let's go. I'm Maylin Lee. I wear what I want, say what I want, 7 365. I don't got time to mess around. Oh, uh, about the hustle, am I right? Never my oh, poor town! Oh my. This is gonna be the best year ever! Yes. And nothing's gonna get in my way. Right. Uh. Oh. Breakfast is ready. It's coming! It's gonna be me! Ah! Is everything okay? I'm a gross red monster! Don't look at me! Stay back! This happened already? What did you say?
0: Our ancestors had a mystical connection with red pandas.
1: Are you kidding me? This little quirk right in our family. Oh ah! You're so cute. Sick. I've always wanted a tail.
0: I'm a freak. We love you, May. You're our girl.
1: <sighs> Whoa. You're you. Any strong emotion yes! will release the panda. Abby, hit me. Do you know how dangerous this is? You'll get whipped up into a frenzy and panda all over. (laughs) Yes! Oh! O-M-G! My whole life I've been perfect little Maymay. But maybe I like this new me. (laughs) Mamas, (laughs) girls.
0: So, when you started working on turning red, um, what were some of the key challenges that you identified for the visual effects?
1: Even before I got on the film, it was the, the the word makes it around the hallways of Pixar when you know there's sort of new films in development, what's going on, and and it was um, the word was making around that Domi was really interested in kind of finding a new look for the film and. You know something that felt um familiar to her time period as a 13 year old I think because it's set in the 2002 in Toronto which is her life you know um but also based off of all the things that she loved in that time period with um anime and video games and and all these kind of chunky cute things um and then a lot of sort of eastern art and so um you know coming from lighting um look is a a thing that every movie we we we're looking at and every sequence you're trying to find the right look for that sequence and stuff and so I think there was a lot of excitement around here about doing different looks and so I thought oh this is going to be really cool and um and so to me that to to pull off a new look is incredibly challenging there's been plenty of times on plenty of movies here where we think whoa we want to do something new and as as things go by, you kind of get pulled back to that center. And some of that is the tools pull you there. Some of that is people's sensibilities pull you there. Some of it is sometimes sort of um, uh, conservativeness or fear that you don't even realize is happening sort of, or rules you've made up that you you don't even know maybe aren't relevant anymore or something. And so, um, so it felt like a really exciting challenge. So that was a huge challenge on the movie that, that, spawned all these other challenges, but that was kind of one of the big ones. And I think one of the bigger technical challenges um, was it was clear that the characters were going to have to do some expressions that were non-traditional and fairly extreme, um, which makes our rigors get, you know, <laughs> kind of like, oh, are you kidding me? Really? Um, and so, and there was some new technology brewing that we could talk about more, but like in the studio that it felt like this was the time to, to try and use it to see if we could help um, get like the fullest acting out of our characters as as was possible for this movie, because it's such an emotional movie with it being about teenagers in middle school, um, but also really funny, too. So trying to serve both those things. Clearly, this is a 3D uh,
0: animated film, which is drawing a lot on 2D uh, traditions what visual techniques did, did you use mm-hmm. to bring those two
1: influences together yeah there, there's multiple ones I would say it you know because coming into this movie they felt almost uh, opposite sense ends of the same spectrum of of having done 3d computer animation for so long it was you know with each movie you're you're developing the technology and you're putting more detail in and more complexity and And if you look at things like um, anime or some of the the really cool video game references or some of the art references, they were much more graphic and um, two dimensional and, you know, these sort of pastel washes or these very graphic sort of um, like lightning strikes or, you know, these things that were very different than that. And so um, that felt like a huge challenge of how to marry those in a world where we have what we've gone after is more and more detail and we always are trying to make things dimensional so um I think one of the most obvious places that you see that in the movie is in the special effects and so because they actually took hand-drawn elements and incorporated them into the effects which I didn't even know what they were going to do until they showed the first one I was like "Oh, oh that's so cool you know and and it didn't to me, it felt like they, there was a lot of sort of work to actually make it sort of work, like um, where you have this mix of really kind of um, physically driven effects. Maybe um, I'm thinking of Man Mountain, where May standing on the, the mountain with the four town around her and there's these roiling pink clouds that are clearly very physically based. They're still sort of stylized, but, and then she's got these hand-drawn beams shooting out of her hands and like, and so one of the, <clears throat> this is just a fun little bit, is that a little code, the piece of code was written to take those hand-drawn elements into Houdini, turn them into a mesh that then the effects the artist could use, but also it could then get passed to lighting, who t- turned into a mesh light. And so those hand-drawn effects now could generate light um, instead of just hacking it in and putting a little light in that's giving some light from them. It actually was coming from the shape of those hand-drawn elements. And so You know, at kind of at every level in every department, everybody was thinking about these different ways of doing things. And I think that's one of the more obvious ones where it's in the film and you're seeing these hand-drawn effects, you know, sort of wrapped into what's more traditional 3D. Um, You know, they did a ton of stylized effects. And so if you look at dust or incense or water, when um, Mae puts her foot in the toilet and the water comes out, you know, the effects artists at first just kind of did a water sim. And Domi starts drawing these sort of very more anime sort of graphic blobs of water coming out. And you'd sort of just look at people going, oh, how are we going to do that? Okay. And, you know, everybody's so into it though. They um, <clears throat> Kylie went off and she came back and there's these really cool blobs of water that come out. And it, all of it really added to the humor of the film in that way, I think. And so um, <clears throat> there was just a lot of... Um, looking at the reference and wrapping it in every department. And so some amount of that was the chunky, cute sort of directive that Domi and Rona had, um, which is like, you could look at that and go, well, they just made things sort of short and squat, but then, but how do you um, not have things look too simple, right? That was a big thing is how do they not look? We need it to feel rich and luscious, but still in this, this graphic way. And so, okay. So you make the characters short and squat and the world sort of short and squat, but like, now, how do you put some of that detail in, but still live in this graphic world? And So if you look at the texture maps for the movie, instead of a normal sort of dirt map that, you know, yeah, I don't know, you could even scan some dirt or something. These are much more sort of bubbly graphic shapes that are driving the dirt pass on things. And so I have to say like the the shading of materials was a really key piece of, of kind of getting to to where we were went, oh yes, we, okay, it can be graphic. It can be three D. It can have these anime elements because it gave you that detail and richness from. But the maps were these sort of still stylized maps for bump and and um, dirt and the different passes, and that was that was a big thing that that Eric Andreos are. Um, our, our key shading guy and, and co-soup of the sets department, he went in and did this looks development and, and got to where it was like, yep, yep, that's totally working. And then you get into lighting and they put in all these, they did beautiful lighting, but they also put in all these cool little anime touches from the highlights and the eyes, doing little stars and upping the it all ups the emotion of things. But even in the cityscapes with these little bubbles around the the um street lights and stuff, and they they did this really cool thing in nuke that's that is all the windows in the show have these, these graphic streaks on them that, you know, they just really pushed it. And, um, I just found that every department was doing that same thing because people were just psyched for the movie and, and kind of getting to do this new thing. And it's, I think the important thing about a new look a lot of times too, is that you have this touchstone of like, what is it inspired by? Cause if you just say, Oh, well, I'll do a new look like that. you you're in a river with no paddle kind of, you know? And so so you could just keep going back to, to the anime and to the reference and, and kind of pull what you could out of it to apply.
0: Let me ask you a question about how you researched and developed uh, the look of the panda.
1: Oh yeah. Um, it started with really cool trips to the San Francisco Zoo who actually had a couple of red pandas. And so, um, you know just getting to stand there and watch those pandas move around in in their area was so cool cuz they're they really are such interesting animals um i didn't even know red pandas existed really before this movie and so i had no preconceived notions and so they're like you know, one of the pandas that was there at the time was mostly sleeping. She was sort of a a older lady and she was just taking naps mostly, but then there was a little bit younger one that would, you know, sort of crawl around like a cat and then it would jump around like a monkey. And then it would sort of start playing with some toys and then it would sort of look at us, you know, and like, it was very funny. And we got to um, the zookeeper who works with the red pandas, you know, showed us did some got the red panda to do some tricks that she had been teaching it. You know, it was really cool. So it always starts with real life, and then coming back and Rona and her team did all this like amazing design work, and and then you put it together and you look at it. And there was a point where, you know, May was really round and cute and and much more probably traditional panda shaped, and Domi said no no. They're really tubular. Like the red pandas are really tubular. And so let's make her more tubular. And so then we did a pass to get her more tubular, which actually added to the funny, I think. And then getting the colors right. So that, um, you know, with all these things, it's we're, we're basing this on a real life thing. And you want to remain true to that to a certain extent. And then you want to be able to tell the story and achieve the things you want to achieve. And so um, having it reminiscent of a red panda, But still, like, you know, we did the magic swirls on her arms or doing the extra white hair or, you know, the things that we really wanted to kind of sell her. um,
0: Tell me about the white hair when. uh, Oh, yeah. When does that show up? And and, and how did you did you do
1: that? You know, with the hair, I think it was we had. um, I don't think we had a lot of huge new techniques in terms of grooming her. Like she was really hard to groom, but it wasn't necessarily so much about new techniques. But um, Sim and Groom did this really cool thing where, when she, um, you know, a lot of these things we're coming up with were to heighten the motion because this is think about a teenager and your your emotions are so extreme. And so, you know, when May Panda May has these moments of like, ah like I, her, her cheek hair goes like this. They called, they started calling it emoting hair. And that actually was, um, you know, you can do that with sort of normal stuff, but it's really tedious. And they came up with a new piece of technology to do that, that made it actually much easier so that instead of just doing kind of a normal SIM, they could add this emoting hair to get that extra sort of emotional hit out of it. Um, And that was, that was actually, it was an offshoot of the technology that um, the profile movers that we used to rig the pandas. And so that was really cool. There was some, some, you know, small, but um, important clumping sort of techniques that they came up with because um, Ming's panda, the giant one, which we called Mingzilla, she had all these clumps of fur. And so being able to do that, um, uh, they, they had just had to come up with a better way to do it. So there was, there was pieces of sort of, um, grooming and SIM technology to make the pandas happen. But a lot of it was just like the really expert artists are bringing their, their work to it, to bring them to life. So tell me about how the panda reacts to light. Like shading hair. I don't know why it still feels so hard, but, um, you know, getting hair to react to light well can be so tricky sometimes. And so um, I remember on Toy Story 2, we had um, the little wiener dog and it was the first time we had really done hair like that. And I would put a light on it and the light would show up on the backside. And I'd get notes from Sharon Callahan back then about lighting the dog. And I was like, I I literally would just like move it somewhere and see if it was any better because it was not doing anything I expected it to. So we've come a long way since then, but it can just be hard, you know, and I think one of the things with Panda May is that she has that white on her face, but she actually has really dark hands. And so, you know, lighting something that has extreme dark and extreme bright can just, it can be pretty challenging and then it's hair. Um, But, you know, in the end it all got dialed into a way to a point where I don't know, I think she looks so cool and um, everything kind of came together, but I guess just to say that it's never easy anymore, I don't think, like, it I, it always feels like it should be, but it just takes, it kind of takes a village to get there.
0: Was it difficult to scale up for the Minzilla uh, fur at the end of the
1: movie? We all saw those storyboards and we were like, whoa, that is a huge panda, what are we going to do? <laughs> because <clears throat> it's a huge panda and she's full screen down to teeny tiny with little Panda may running up her, you know, like in the later storyboards we saw. And so, um, there was conversation about, first of all, what would the scale of her hair be? Like if you got right up close to a giant Mingzilla, would her hair be the same scale as little Panda may? And there's just a gazillion more of them, which probably, how are we ever going to do that? But, um, Or do you want it to actually feel bigger scale because she's so big that that actually feels, you would feel the scale more at that point. Um, So we did some tests and um, we ended up doing sort of a combination of um, like a stunt hand. So when May's in the hand um, and you're seeing it right up close, you know, you can, you you pull off the hand and and pose it where you don't see it connecting and you can put way more hair on it so that you can get it exactly where you want, but you're not paying for an entire panda's worth of millions and millions and millions more hair. Um, so it was really kind of a combo of, um, scaling up more hair, but not making the hair so fine that that it actually sort of belied what the, the scale change was Um, And then managing sort of up close details with um, uh, either a different version of the panda where you could put more on the face or stunt hands and and arms. Um, And then, you know, we had a panda running up a panda grabbing onto the hair. And that was, I don't even know how those, they pulled that off. It was, it was pretty amazing because it was also at the end of the film when you're just racing to get everything done and they're taking on this really difficult thing. And Show up and review, and there it is. There's Panda May climbing up Mingzilla.
0: I read somewhere that you used a new um, a new rigging system for characters. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us about how that works and what it yeah. brings? Um,
1: so it's it's called profile movers and curve nets, and I'll I'll give you maybe the the layperson's description of it, which is um. It was this cool thing where we have this, we have a, a technical director breakfast every maybe six months or something, and people show cool stuff that they've done on the movies, or if they're doing sort of side projects. And um, Bill Scheffler, one of our riggers that's been here forever, um, super talented guy, had thought about rigging and and hooked up with two of the guys in um, our R&D group, Fernando Dagoa and um, Kurt Fleischer. And they came up with this profile mover system that you know, instead of sort of point weighting, which um, you dragging points around can be this very sort of manual thing, let's say. This instead is, is um, there's sort of the sparse um, net of curves on say the Panda. And you compose pose those curves to hit the profile or the shape that you want. And then the code solves the point weighting to that. And so instead of like sort of doing all this this sort of painful um, point weighting that then the animators, you know, they always take things past where you you think they're going to take them and then you got to go fix it again. It was this much cleaner sort of um, artistic way, um, in my opinion, to kind of hit the things that is, it's the way you're thinking about things anyways. What shape do I want to hit? What profile do I want to hit? And it, it really served that and took away some of the, the kind of more tedious work to get it there. And so, um, you know, it was unproven. It hadn't been used on any movies and, but I thought, man, this, this will be amazing um, if it works. And so um, put it, it got put on Panda May. And originally I think it was just going to be on the body, but then it, it was really working so well that, that her whole, all of her rigging system is used with it. And, and it sort of layers in with traditional deformations and the animators can access these things. And so I think, and it makes something like these extreme mouth shapes that we had to do because, because Panda May goes, Ooh, and she does giant, and then it's the bean shape, like we saw on Luca a little bit, and we're seeing on Red, and and then Domi was drawing in storyboards the cat mouth, which is this sort of almost squiggly line, and all of those things together, like oh, but with the profile movers, it actually made it much easier. And so, um, you know, I think that um, it just made her an easier character to, to hit a lot of those things. Um, Instead of that taking a ton of development time and a lot of hand-holding on on both the rigging and animation side, I think it made it much easier. And the really cool thing is then um, it was used on all the pandas on our show and now future shows are using it for almost all the rigging, I think. So so it turned out to be this really cool thing (laughs) that we got to kind of test and help develop so it could be used um, more broadly.
0: So uh, Danielle, can you please tell me a little bit about how you developed the look for the um, bamboo grove? Uh, that, that yeah. was fascinating. And also you, like what techniques did you use to create the magical effects? I mean, that, that mirror. portal? You know, yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah. Pole, but it looks like a circle and a mirror and that they, the, the women walk through.
1: I I love that scene. Um, You know, uh, when we first started working on that scene, um, our awesome sets department built a bamboo forest because that's, you know, they referenced the bamboo (laughs) forest and they showed it, you know, the simple thing and chose it, showed it in review. And Domi said, no, 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 no. I think it should look more. It was all, it was actually, once we got into it, more graphic. It should, the house of flying daggers. Let's go pull up. And we pulled up scene, the, the clips from that really cool um Ghost of Tsushima was a, a, another inspiration for that um and so then once the forest got into that sort of graphic thing we were going for you'll you'll love this in a view conference uh, alum many times Sharon Callahan actually did some lighting paintings for that that were just beautiful and they had it was pretty monochromatic with all this dappled light that were so inspiring and <clears throat> um so then, uh, Jordan Remple, who was um, our DP, Jonathan Pickles, sort of right hand person, doing a lot of the look stuff. He actually looked that, and he—it's so cool because I got a sneak peek at it while he was still in progress, and it hadn't been shown in review. And um, Jonathan showed it to me. He's like, "Look at what Jordan's doing!" And it's this is the such fun stuff about making movies. And I thought, <laughs> "Oh, that is amazing! I've never seen anything like that. Like, what is he doing? How is he getting that?" And you know. So the look of it was so cool where we, you know, you have all these like really cool kind of um, graphic vertical pieces of bamboo and then you, you put some fog in it and then you can kind of get some dappled light in there, but choosing where you get to put the dappled light, which um, we had a lot of fun with on Brave, you know, it's like you really get to highlight things in this really lovely way. And, um, there was sort of this, um, a horizon light that was, um, kind of softly pulsing a little bit to give you a little bit of that ethereal quality. Um, and then he did all this cool sort of smearing or blurring, but, but he, when he told me when we were talking about it, that it was, um, the trick was really to have it be different. It could be the same on things. And so sort of doing smearing differently on <coughs> the dapples versus the characters versus, uh, like the portal or the, there's always leaves falling in there they're pretty subtle but that to help with them the magic um so that was sort of the look of the forest and there's almost like chromatic aberrations in there in this really cool way that did a lot of I don't know this cool otherworldly thing yeah. and then the portal was um you know it was really it was a ton of effects work it was sort of that was a um, sort of a circular mirror that had a couple different layers. So you could see one side versus the other side, you know, into a different dimension of sorts. And, um, and there was, so, so there was comp work in getting the edges to do the right thing. Cause you can imagine the edges can be pretty critical there in terms of it look, just looking like some dumb CG disc floating in air or something versus something <laughs> magical. And then um there were the plasma, we call the plasma, the the fingers that are kind of holding on to them to to show the force of stretching. And um <clears throat> Nate Skeen, one of our effects artists, he he had so much patience with those because they were they were really important to get, do we really wanted them to sort of snap so that you really could feel the drama of May trying to separate from the panda? And so he did a lot of iterations to get them to like just so, so you could really read that sort of tension. Um And then you have the spirit pandas coming through those portals. And one of our effects leads, Carl Kaffin, he did those. And they, I love those things, they're so cool with that swirling chromatic aberration-y thing that sort of fits in that world. And, you know, there's this last one where um, Ming's panda goes past May and it's so big and it does this swirly thing. And there was this moment at the end of the film where we're trying to get it done. And our um, Jacob Brooks, our simulation supervisor, he calls out like awkwardly late. I don't, that tail's not doing the right thing. And we all sort of, oh, Brooks, we got to finish the film. And they went and fixed to it. And now the tail does this most lovely sort of sweep like this as it goes past me. And I, every time I look at him, I'm like, you're so right. It's so nice. It's so beautiful. <laughs> so yeah. there was a there was so much cool stuff happening in that scene, which it needed to, you know, it's like the magical place for the end of the movie, but, right. but it was, there was some like- cool stuff key moment
0: right it's like yeah. the climax yeah. the, the words exchanged, changed and 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 visually also you're doing
1: yeah. pyrotechnics maybe important to mention there too is that for the filmmakers out there that thinks this is just easy because this pixar and big studio or we've done a lot of films i think those words were probably some of the last ones written it, that was the very most difficult thing i think to get right was so that you could hit the right emotion um, but you know, Domi didn't want it all wrapped up in a nice bow either. And so so trying to hold on to that and but still have it land emotionally.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the crowd scenes in the concert. Did you use
1: crowd management
0: tools?
1: Yeah. Um one of the cool things on the film was that um our crowds um tools group and department had been working on a new crowds pipeline and we got to use it for the first time, PCF crowds, they're calling it. Um, Basically integrated with um, our animation software, Presto, um, in in a really, it took advantage of being inside of Presto. And so um, crowds and say layout could load a whole bunch of characters and not slow things down. They had um, a scale stand-in sort of thing and um, some other magic that made that possible. But what that meant is you could at, I think it hit about 15 frames per second. So not real time, but blazingly fast for crowds. Um, You could set the number of crowds that immediately updated. Um, You could set all different kinds of um, Parameters on them. So, like, um, they could, you could twiddle a knob and they would all change to being in their gym outfits or something that we saw in the film. Um, and so, you could change, you could basically cast the film, but you could check out the whole thing. Then you could start changing the animation clips because um, they were pre rigged. And so, you're choosing between them. And so, and you could hit play and they would just move. You could scrub and they move. It's that fast. And, <clears throat> and but it goes further than that where in the, um, you know, in the concert, Mingzilla jumps down and the crowds scatter and, um, Paul Kanyuk, our, our crowd supervisor, who's been here a long time. He is the crowds guru. He, um, did a demo for me of, you have these, um, PCF crowds and you put a target and you move it around. The crowds are sort of shifting away from it. Like it's Mingzilla. And then, um, he keyframes it and he hits play and the crowds are sort of like going to the concert and then all of a sudden the the target comes and they scatter. And he's like, well, but maybe we want it to be in a different place. And he's moving around. You're watching the crowd slide around at 15 frames per second. And then, and then like, it's unreal. I've never seen anything like it because you know, with crowds, it's usually so there's so many characters to load. It's so heavy. It's so slow. And this was just like, oh, well, okay, well, what if we want, oh, I want these characters to do something different. And he's just sweep selecting them, moving them out of the way. And then he hits play and it does the right thing. And like, it was really cool. So, you know, for this movie going into it, we thought I should have mentioned that in the challenge I was like, this movie is going to be really hard, like a lot of crowds. Um, we had a ton of sim on this movie too. But like, I think that new crowds pipeline really allowed, for much quicker sort of setup of crowds and iteration of crowds paul has this video of him setting up a as if you were doing a marathon in toronto and he just click 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 and then dropping crowds in the it has depth in the viewer so it's dropping these kids that are dancing on the rooftop and then he draws some curves and you have the crowds on the side of the street that he sets to be sort of like cheering or something and then he sets a curve going down the middle of the street and sets them to running and then it's like within two minutes, he has a marathon scene set up. I've never seen anything like it. So the crowds were a special thing. Um, and that stadium, it was a ton of crowds. They're doing, um, you know, it's at a certain point, um, Fortown is, you know, you want it, we want it. And they're, you know, doing this call and response. And so it's not, it's not just this like, yay, hey, I'm cheering, I'm at a concert, you know, some really <clears throat> orchestrated stuff with Mingzilla coming in and running. So Oh, I'm I'm excited about the crowds clearly. Um, but like there was all this really cool stuff in that stadium was that was that was a complicated scene, and they got some really late notes on it because of a screening and and man, they they just made it happen. They are they are real pros and did beautiful work. So um, but I have to say that that the new crowds pipeline must have must have been such a joy for them because it was just like just watching it was so much fun.
0: What was the most difficult sequence to to do from the point of view of the visual effects?
1: I mean, probably that we're um, in the stadium. So you've got Mingzilla destroying the stadium as she's opening it up. She jumps down, she's destroying the ground. There's effects. Um, Our sets team, Peter Rowe, did this really cool shader that um, could augment the destruction by effects with broken concrete that looked really... um, Believable with just shading. And so it, it made for a lot of, you didn't have to worry about continuity as much because you could just shade a little bit of brokenness over here. And as the audience member, you kind of bought it. There were animating lights. So it was a concert. So there's lights going all over the place. There was some cool technology for that. Um, poor Jonathan and his team in lighting trying to light something like that with all of that chaos and how do you sort of carve out the things you need the audience to look at. We talked about the crowds. It was a huge amount of crowds doing really kind of orchestrated um, movement and behavior Um, effects had to do all the things they had to do. Our poor simulation team is (laughs) having seven aunties pulling the tail of a giant panda. I mean, you know, and crawling up the giant panda and um, you know, and then we're working in all these fun things like the um, you know, when May's speeding at mom to hit her in the forehead and all those speed lines to really emphasize that and then that's another one where there's the sort of hand-drawn effects where we flash do black and white flashes of the hand-drawn effects to really do the impact and um the magic of um when mingzilla and all their spirits are going up and she's levitating and there's this beam and uh, you know there's so much going on in there and those were of course the last sequences that we worked on and so it's the part where you're just like Okay. You know, you don't have months to figure stuff out. It's more like you got to figure it out right now, but I have to say like people, there was this amazing coordination between the groups because we knew that it was going to take a lot of coordination. And even starting from the very beginning, we did some VR sessions to look at the stadium and look at the characters because you knew there were going to be scale issues because Mingzil is huge. The stadium's huge, but we're also focusing on Panda May and her friends and family who are tiny. And there's these shots of of like going from Panda may up to Mingzilla where you have to have them both in frame and how are you even going to pull that off, you know? And so, so it's really cool. Cause, um, my got in there to set the cameras and figure it out in VR and we've got our sets group Karski and those guys figuring out how to build the stadium so we could fit it right. And kind of adjusting things from that VR session. And so it started from the very beginning there, um, and figuring out how we can kind of <clears throat> limit the destruction and just where things were going to, get broken so that effects could get going on that with sets early and so it was it was such a um cool coordinated team effort on that one that like i don't know if we would have well certainly we would have finished somehow but i don't know if it would have had quite the same impact if we hadn't had that coordination in the same way oops it, it was um that was a big one <laughs> I want to ask you about humor.
0: How uh, I think humor plays uh, an important role in um, as
1: a structuring principle in in the movie. Back in the day, before Red was totally a thing, Domi presented at the company meeting. They had some of the the shows in development present, and she showed a sequence that's not all that different than what actually ended up in the film where we first meet May. And the whole place was just roaring with laughter. Like, this movie... From the beginning have was hilarious. <clears throat> um part of that is just me like her her sensibilities and her her sense of what it's like to be 13 and what's ridiculous, kind of, and um also not shying away from sort of the cringy moments that are also funny. Um, and so it's it's there in the story completely, but it's also I think that a lot of the humor was heightened by some of the things we were doing visually, and so um. You know some of those 2D elements that we put in there with the the anime eyes or the the effects elements like they so they sort of heighten things in a different way but also we haven't talked about the animation at all and the animators really did some very different things on this movie um Aaron Hartline and Patty Kim they directed a lot of stuff with with you know Domi had very specific sensibilities and uh it took some like untraining of of the animators who you know you've been a pixar or you've been wherever and you've honed your craft and now now they're asking you to do completely different <laughs> things so so like um you know like aaron was talking about in, the, in our talk um with the whole group but uh with the friends all of my friends <clears throat> in a lot of the scenes they move them all as one and so um you know they make the sort of totem pole of girls' heads when they're coming around the Daisy Mart window to look at, at the cute boy or whatever. Um, Or when they're on the, the bleachers, this one was a really fun one, the bleachers and Tyler's underneath and all their heads kind of pop under at once from different places, you know, and, (laughs) and when you look at it, and they pointed out, it's, it, it just adds so much humor and not the way we normally would have done things. And then there's a lot of, you know, to be a good animator, you're doing a lot of overlapping motion and everything's moving and we don't ever still in all these things. And then in this movie, it was very much about um, one motion sort of. And so my, my favorite example that Aaron and Patty have is um, when Paname is in the bathroom and shoves Stacy Frick back into the stall and how many times it took to Get the animator they're like no, just move the arms. And he keeps animating Panda May because they've been taught so much to do that. And then finally, in the <laughs> final one, Panda May just moves her arms. And it's hilarious. It's so much funnier that way. And and all these held poses and isolated motion, all the stuff they did that <clears throat> is pretty counter to to what everyone's been taught. But in this movie, works completely and just makes everything so much funnier. And you know, that's the brilliance of Domain's, like she knows that, and it's it's stuff that's that's part of how we pull the essence of the anime out of it, you know, but in this, but stay in this cool world where, um, Oh, it was just so funny. And it just really served that in this really magnificent way.
0: Danielle, let, I have a, 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 a question for you here about how you think that, uh, turning red relates to today's audiences.
1: I think there's some pretty, um, universal things in there you know everyone's gone through being a teenager um that's that's potentially watching the movie um my 8 year old uncle told me he just loved it like he was crazy about it you know and he's a, a white jewish guy in boston so <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> like um it clearly has some elements to it that are universal i think it's very funny it's got all the teenager stuff and all the the sort of extreme emotions of being a teenager, I think it'd be kind of hard to forget that, and to be able to have some, some humor around it, I think is um, potentially healing for a few of us, perhaps. And um, you know, and just uh, there's a lot of themes about sort of who you're going to be in the world, and how much you're going to answer to what your family thinks you should be, and how much you're trying to follow your own path, and the importance of friends. And I think all of those are very relatable. Um, to a very wide swath of the population.
0: If you were to uh, write a letter to your younger self,
1: what would you say to her? It'd probably be hard to get her to believe it, but um, to try to not take everything quite so seriously. Um, And I think also very importantly is that, um, you know, the things that make you different, that feel terrible now will actually be your power and strength later in life. Um, Yeah. I wish, I wish I had known that back then, you know, I think I would have tortured myself a little less (laughs) and, and felt a little stronger, you know? Um, uh, Yeah. I think those, those are the two things I probably would try and tell myself.
0: As a woman, I do believe that representation is important. So, why do you think it's important to uh, represent women as protagonists?
1: There's a really fundamental thing that happens when you see yourself represented on a big screen or a small screen, and um, I don't, I don't have the science for why that is, but like, um, I think we've seen how. <clears throat> um, just having things show up on TV or in film can, can change culture. And, um, and I think seeing yourself on a screen makes you feel recognized in a really different way. Um, As a lesbian, that is, that has been a huge thing over the course of my life of, there was, there was zero representation when I was growing up and it made it feel really bad and scary. And like, nobody in the world is like this. And I am, something is wrong with me and I need to hide it at all costs kind of thing. And now it's nice to see that, 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 it's, um, you know, it's, it's not as like, you can have LGBTQ characters in a movie and they don't even call it out. It's just a part of the, the plot, like the, the friend that likes the girl that does the thing. And that to me feels like, you know, it's been normalized to a point where like that has an impact on me, a positive impact on me. And so, um, I think in every way, shape, or form, if people can be represented in that way, um, it, it just makes a huge difference in terms of um, feeling recognized, but feeling seen. And um, yeah. I, it's, it's I, I don't I can't state the importance of it enough. I guess yeah. I
0: want to ask you that question that we already asked during the view conference, because I found your, your answer very moving. What animal would you have turned into as a teenager? I don't know if I even remember what I answered. (laughs) (laughs) You said an animal that cries all the
1: time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cries and can disappear. Uh, (laughs) I guess today what, what occurs to me is maybe, um, If I give it a like a a real actual answer was um, maybe maybe like a squirrel because I feel like you know the squirrel kind of comes out and they check out what's going on and they're cool and then when things are a little bit dangerous they sort of like scamper back up the tree Um, so they can kind of be in the mix they can be given the dog a hard time they can do the thing and then they kind of disappear and I think as a teenager that was probably like um, you know sometimes I was in the mix and sometimes I just wanted to to disappear and maybe go cry in my tree with my nuts or something. I don't know. And, um,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, it, but it was definitely, teenagers were definitely a lot of like, I'm here. Oh, nah, okay. nope, I'm back. I'm trying. I'm strong. Nope. Ah, I got to run, you know, like, so, so maybe the squirrel is the best answer.
0: Okay. Very last question. Just to, to give some advice to, young filmmakers young artists out there who dream of becoming vfx supervisors what would you say to
1: them i can't speak for vfx supervisors anywhere else but um i I do (laughs) think that it's the important thing is um especially in a role like this is that you have some understanding of art and tech you know you can really kind of understand how everything comes together um because I feel a little bit like my job is to um, pave the road for the artists to be able to put their best work on the screen. And sometimes that's getting them the technology. Sometimes that's deciphering some of the stuff that Domi said. Sometimes it's pulling a group together to do that. Um, and so, I, but I think it's much harder to. Be a baby VFX supervisor and become a full-fledged VFX supervisor, what you really need to do is go find the thing you love about computer animation and dive into that. And I think the one thing I would say is that we've seen a lot of students who come for like the Pixar undergraduate program, which is an internship we have that's a summer long you get to try all these different things at Pixar and you get to do a final project with a mentor that's someone who's done something like it on a film. And it's this really cool program and I would say like I don't know. I bet half the students who come in come in thinking, "Oh, I love modeling, or I love um, special effects, or something," and they leave loving something else. And so, <clears throat> trying to stay as open as you can um, to sort of different pieces of the pipeline, so that you you really can find the thing that you most jam on, because that's that will take you the farthest and make your life the most enjoyable when you're getting to do the work that you love, you know, sort of day in and day out and working on movies. Um, you know, and then, um, I, I, think probably one of the things that's helped me is I have spent, um, I put a high priority on working with other departments and collaboration. And so part of that is understanding what other departments are going through and what their challenges are. Um, cause otherwise you can ask for something and they say no, but you don't know why they said no. And you could have asked <laughs> for it a little different way and maybe they can do it then, or maybe they're. They're dying on this film and what you need to do is help them or, you know, there's there's all these different factors involved. And so um, I think in terms of understanding kind of there's there's almost an ecosystem of movies and how you get them done and the push and pull between departments and how um, assets and shots flow through the pipeline that the more you can start to understand about that. The better you're going to be at your job anyways, but I think the higher up you can go because you start getting into the, the positions where you're sort of dealing with more of the departments and, and how to bring things together to get them on the screen.